This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashio Christie, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm John Conforti. And do we have Kirk? Somebody needs to turn on Kirk's microphone. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay. You, you switched to Verizon or something? Defective microphone. Happens all the time. <laughs> all right. So you do have an engineer in there with you, right? Uh, yes. Okay. So there were two of you. <laughs> I won't mention any names, but his first initial is John. <laughs> all right. That's okay. we got to rib him every once in a while. Uh, all right. So today's topic, this is going to be interesting. Who invented Christianity? Good question. Was it Paul? Was it Constantine? Was it some Egyptian spiritualist? Well, we'll find out. But we want to remind people to check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com, evidence the number four, faith.com, where you will find archived shows. And you can also find our podcasts on iTunes, or if you have an Android, you can use Double Twist to load our podcasts. Also, check out ratiochristi.org. Okay, guys, news items. While I was on vacation, I heard an interesting news item. I don't remember that. We talked about it last week with John. Uh, and Did they I have news say, where you were, Keith? Oh yeah, they they heard. I think I talked about it a little bit. French Polynesia, so Tahiti, Tahiti, and uh, Bora Bora, and Morea, and a couple other places. Did you bring a grass skirt back with you? No, but they do have them there. Yes, this is definitely the place of grass skirts, and uh, you know I didn't even try one on for size, so. Ooh, I wouldn't put that picture on the Facebook page, even if you had one. <laughs> no, I did put a picture up with me with a mask and snorkel on, though. So Okay. Yeah, it Gee, was lots only... of fun. Got to swim with sharks, dolphins, uh, giant manta rays. Uh, it was it was great fun. This guy goes on vacation. He goes to Bora Bora. The only island I ever go to on vacation is Wildwood. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Right next door to where you are, you should let, we should uh, let people know. Just about. So while I was out there, I heard that Dr. Stephen Meyer, who's been a guest on the show with his first book, Signature in the Cell, has come out with a second book, Darwin's Doubt. And it was number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. So, yeah. And I, I went to go get it. You know, at the airport, they'll have – bookstores and typically they'll have the top 10 bestsellers and it was the only slot that was empty. So that could mean that all the issues were bought. Or it could so, mean they didn't stock that one. It could be, but you know what? There were a couple of other 
uh, Christian slash religious titles that were in the top ten. So uh, the, and those were were there. So I, I, I assume it was stocked. But anyway, uh, it also made it up to number nine on Amazon, which is like huge because that's like everything sold. So it was number nine out of all books being sold. So so that's pretty wow. good. Wow. So uh, recommend it. And, um, you know, covers the Cambrian explosion and, and the problem that Darwin had with trying to explain uh, how all these species could exist so suddenly uh, with no precursors, no ancestors in the fossil record. And all that's happened since then give, is give it found- another Give it another two weeks and Richard Dawkins will have a book out, you know, like Myers Mortification (laughs) or something like that. There you go. Try to counter it. Yep, that's probably true. So, uh, but yeah, this is a real issue that paleontologists have been looking at and they just find more and more organisms fully formed with complex organs like compound eyes and things that just have no explanation in the fossil record prior. So it really... uh, Goes hard use, against. They can't use the excuse that, like you know, soft tissue doesn't uh, fossilize because we get we get fossilized octopus, we get fossilized jellyfish, you know, and all that. Right. So that used to be the old excuse, and uh, they really have stopped using that. But they that, that's really like their only excuse, and so they really don't know where else to go from that. Yeah, very true. So we recommend that book. I've got a quote of the week. This is. From British anatomist Sir Solly Zuckerman, and he says, So much glamour still attaches to the theme of the missing link and to man's relationships with the animal world that it may always be difficult to exercise from the comparative study of primates, living and fossil, the kind of myths which the unaided eye is able to conjure out of a well of wishful thinking. <laughs> so very interesting a complaint of his that uh, there are so many people want there to be a missing link that they don't even need actual fossil evidence. Well, the problem is it's not just a missing link. It's a, it's a whole chain missing. <laughs> yes, yes. And one of the popular ones uh, recently got a, another black mark against it, and that is Lucy, the Australopithecus. Mm-hmm. So that has been prominently promoted as the first walking primate, the first pre-human that we uh, supposedly know about, even though there is a large body of data and published work that show that Lucy actually walked on her knuckles, uh, that she had the same brains, the same jaws, the same limbs, and the same inner ear as an ape. So she is thought by uh, many to be just an extinct uh, orangutan type of uh, ape. A lot of this stuff has been published in scientific journals like Nature. But there was recently something published in the journal Science, and it talks about the discovery of a scapula, a Australopithecus scapula, and that is that triangular-shaped bone on the back underneath the behind your shoulders where the muscles attach for your arms, and it showed that Lucy was a tree climber. So, of course, uh, proponents of 
the Lucy, Lucy as a progenitor to human beings say that, well, okay, she walked upright and she was a tree climber. So, Well, there you are. There's proof that we're related to her because all kids like to climb trees, right? There you go. Oh, of course. There you go. Works for me. <laughs> In fact, the article even says uh, not only is this like um, not just an early uh, tree climbing scapula or maybe one that is partly and you can see kind of halfway between, it claims this article in, in science says that it is the same as existing tree climbing scapulas. So uh, that hasn't even changed uh, over time. So are they ready but, to admit that this isn't a pre-human yet? No, and I think that's because of that has to do with that quote by the anatomist Zuckerman. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there is just too much invested in this. So what I always find most interesting about the Lucy skeleton is that obviously is it's not a complete skeleton. We don't have, for instance, the feet, we don't have the a full skull. All the parts that we do have are clearly ape like. The the hand bones, the the hip bones, everything that we do have is ape, and they'll say that. Everything we do have is ape. All the ones we don't have are the human ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we can imagine that they're human, that, you know, the ones that, 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 that we don't have, you know, and that, that's a, you know, very clever, you know, dodge to, to put in there, but, you know, it, it just doesn't work as far as science is concerned, because science is about what you do have, not about what you can imagine you have. Yes, yep. what you can imagine is called science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, let's uh, let's turn the corner to our topic for the day. Uh, we're going to be looking at this question of who invented Christianity. And it's something that you hear occasionally, you know, um, I think you I've I've heard occasionally, you know, Paul, I think my uh, one, well, I won't say who, but one of my relatives uh, not long ago said something about how Paul invented Christianity. Um, you also hear things like um, that the Emperor Constantine in what at the Council of Nicaea, that's typically how the story goes, that he uh, laid down the rules of how Christianity was going to be from then on and you know, all the bishops just, you know, kind of kowtowed to him because he was the emperor. And I guess, I don't know, you know, I never did read Dan Brown. Did either of you read Dan Brown's book? Yes, I did. I, uh, so is that theory in there? Is uh, is that where a lot of this comes from? Yes. Um, well, I don't know if it's a lot of it, but he certainly is uh, promotes that theory, his character, Lee Teeming. Uh, states at one point in time that, uh, and I'm mildly paraphrasing here to sort of get it into one uh, pithy sentence, is that uh, Jesus became God by a close, narrow vote at the Council of Nicaea. Oh, right. Where, um, where Constantine also mandated what books would go into the, uh, into the New Testament. You know, and he's explaining that to Sophie Deneuve, you know, that, you know, uh, you, you know nothing about the, you know, the New Testament, my dear. I think is, you know, how he starts off the, the, the conversation. Um, and clearly by, by his statements, he knows nothing about the New Testament or about history. Uh, you know, if, if that's, you know, it's just very, what disturbs me mostly about that book, I don't mind, you know, necessarily, uh, it, it being a fictionalized account, and it's it's supposed to be a you know a, a murder mystery, 
but it's when at the very beginning of the book where Dan Brown himself states that, you know, that this is, uh, you know, all the artwork and all the rituals and all the history is accurately depicted. And, and so he leads people to believe that all of this stuff that he's peddling is actual true history. And then when it gets repeated, I, if you read, I read the New York Times review of this when it had broken into the, the top ten uh, on, on their bestseller list, and its its review of it, the New York Times reviewer said that it is scrupulously and detailed uh, and, and, and scrupulously – researched in a detailed fashion yeah there's no way that anybody who knew what they were talking about could make such a statement and And, and, didn't the author include footnotes um in a in some areas yeah there there were there were one or two i don't think it it was certainly wasn't you know footnoted in a scholarly fashion you know to you know but uh every once in a while you'd run across the thing saying you know oh you know this piece you know of of art is at such and such a place or you know you, you know you could find that you know but it wasn't you but know which is pretty unusual for a work of fiction yeah un- unusual but i don't think i don't think he was going as far as to try to make it look like it was he was coming off as a skull you know at, at, that it was being a put there as a scholarly work but with that preface there at the beginning he certainly was trying to say that he was that everything that he was basing it on was accurately and it was being accurate so when lee teabing makes this kind of a statement that that is an accurate statement he is he is he is certainly implying that that is true and nothing could be further from the truth when to, to say that Constantine really had anything to do with the substance of the development of Christianity, the promotion of it certainly, and the uh, I mean, he certainly had. I don't. I don't think Christianity would have become what it has become were it not for uh, Constantine's conversion, and of course, you know, Christianity becoming an imperial religion. But he did, even that is misconstrued. Many people think that uh, Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the empire, the Roman Empire, and that is not true. That didn't happen for, until like two emperors later. He all he did was make it legal to be a Christian. He, he stopped the persecutions, uh, and he himself, of course, was Christian, and therefore, yes, it did help. You know, if you. You know, were Christian if you wanted to be in in, in the government, but he did not by no means made uh, Christianity the official religion of the empire. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings, and I'm John Conforti, and we are talking about who invented Christianity. So, all right, let's. Uh, so you've you've mentioned a couple things about Constantine. So let's. Let's uh, let's go a little bit in more in depth into that. Uh, who was Constantine? What influence did he actually have? Uh, the Council of Nicaea, and is that where Christianity really got its start? What about this uh, vote that supposedly just barely made Jesus a deity? <laughs> barely, yeah. Well, let's we could deal with. Let's take his sort of his statement in reverse. The idea that. Somehow the the books of the Bible were chosen at the Council of Nicaea. That they weren't even mentioned. The, the, Nicaea had nothing whatsoever to do with that. Uh, 
there was a point in in Constantine's reign where he did say he wanted some uh, uh he wanted 50 bound copies of the Christian scriptures done in the finest quality of the uh of the of the art of calligraphy and he wanted those for his churches but he did not know at the time that there were no there was no official canon of 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 christian scripture at the time mm. and he and he did not even know that so and clearly he for the record shows that he pretty much remained clueless about that the bishop sort of kept him in the dark and they we're not really sure what books they put into this first uh, what's known as constantine's bible um because we don't have any copies of that work product that eventually came out of that we feel it pretty much probably mirrors what we have today we're not sure like for instance whether the book of revelation was in there uh but it certainly had the works of uh, the letters of paul were in it probably the four gospels were in there uh question as to whether john might have might or might not have been there you know the scholars debate about what exactly was in constantine's bible and that actually is evidence of the fact that he did not choose what went into the Bible, because we would then have some authoritative list dating from that period, and, and all of our Bibles would look like Constantine's Bible. But the fact is, is that that process of canonization took well over a hundred years, and it wasn't until two or three emperors down the road. In fact, the Catholic Bible, the Catholic canon, was open until the 16th century. The last books of the Catholic Bible for the Old Testament, these were Old Testament books, were canonized in the mid-16th century as a response to uh, the Protestant Reformation. Right. So this is 13 centuries after Constantine. So I don't see how you could possibly say that the canon was somehow influenced by Constantine 13 centuries after he was dead. They were still adding to the, to, to the, to the Catholic canon. So, uh, you know, that charge is just completely bogus so we, we can dismiss that just pretty much out of hand the um the issue of making christ a deity and and this has to do with the whole issue of the trinity you know the the, the doctrine of the trinity and uh the character lee teaving of course characterizes this vote at nicaea as being a close narrow vote where you know christ was elevated to godhood well, this sounds like our modern Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it actually it was, really wasn't even that close. Um, the issue under discussion at Nicaea, first of the, the official reason for Nicaea was to set the date for Easter. But they, everybody knew that they were coming to discuss what was called the Arian heresy. Uh, a bishop named Arius had a particular view of Christ, and I'm sure, Keith, you can outline what the Arian heresy was probably maybe better than I can. Well, just that, um, you know, Jesus was um, not uh, the creator God. He was essentially a demigod. He was um, kind of an exalted man, uh, um, very much like um, Jehovah's Witnesses and, um, well, I guess Mormons would actually consider Jesus to be a God, but he's like a separate God. Um but anyway, uh, yeah. So he's so not of the same substance. Yeah, exactly. He he was different from God. He was a created being, and he was essentially uh, deified or glorified or exalted by God because he was such a good um, creation. 
Right. And that yeah. so he was not of the same substance as God. Okay. Right. So he wasn't God. And this was known as the Arian heresy. But to show generally how the, the, the Christian church has been always willing to listen to new ideas, they gave him a three-month hearing uh, in front of the every bishop in in the in the Christian church, you know, they sat and listened to him for three months debating this issue of right. whether he was right. Right. So he and, could present his verses and gospel and from the writings of the apostles and things to prove his point. Right. They gave him every opportunity to, to present his case. At the end of the three months, after discussing it, and we still have all, all of the, the attendant speeches and records. and records and everything that were presented yep. at Nicaea, so you can, you can look it up yourself and read what was said. Uh, this close vote came in. Now, there were 306 bishops that attended the council at Nicaea. The vote was 303 to 3. <laughs> right. Which was uh, Arius and two of his friends, right? Two of his good friends. Probably, I don't know if his mother and his wife got to vote. I don't know. But it, not exactly a close, narrow vote as Dan Brown uh, typifies it. Okay? Right. Now, not like the four to three uh, Supreme Court decisions or anything. <laughs> exactly. No, not exactly. No, this was pretty much a rollover. All right. But even, I mean, even after three months of debate. Now, what does this tell you? Now, if it had been at all controversial that Jesus was God, okay, the deity of Christ was in fact, you know, or the tri or the doctrine of the Trinity was at all controversial. You would have seen a much closer vote, I think, sure, sure. than the for than the formulation, the Nicene Creed that they came up with. I don't think it would have garnered as much support. Uh, you might have seen like, you know, say 250 to, you know, 53 or 200 to 103, you know, whatever. You certainly would not have seen it. What this tells me, and I think every other scholar of, of the time, is that this was so overwhelming because this is what they had been teaching all along. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't novel. It wasn't something that they just came up with. This is what they had been teaching for 300 years. Okay, and so you know, if if it were something that was really novel, then I think you would have seen a lot more debate, a lot more uh, dissension, and uh, you know, not as and 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 by the way, Constantine was not involved with these debates or this vote at all. He opened the council, he welcomed the bishops, he said, "Report to me what your findings were," because he was he was as much in the dark really as anybody else. He was a new, he had been a pagan. He was a new Christian, and he wanted to know the answers. So he just – he didn't want to determine the answers. He just wanted to know the answers. And I think right. Constantine gets something of a bad rap in some in some instances because some people say he wasn't really a Christian and that he was just a shrewd politician. And they base this mainly on things like, well, he didn't get baptized until, until he was almost dead. He, he got baptized like three days before he died. But this wasn't uncommon at all in this period because they believed in what they called the efficacy of baptism. And that is that you got, when you got baptized, you were forgiven for all the sins prior to your baptism. But yes, you, that's right. But you were responsible for all the sins afterwards. That's right. Yes, there was great concern in the early church 
that after you, you know, officially became a Christian, a member of the church, if you sinned, that those sins would not be covered, that the, uh, you know, you basically fell out of grace. Boy, that's really which, tricky. That means that you have to figure out how to get baptized as close to the moment you die as possible. Exactly. Well, yes, and, and, exactly. Actually, and actually there were some churches had requirements that, for instance, they wouldn't baptize you until you had been in training for two years. So you had to be a disciple in training for two years so that you could learn uh, not to sin, that you would have, uh, you know, overcome your sin problems, and then, only then, would they baptize you. All right, and this led to several, um, rather, some practices. For instance, if you were in the military and you were going into what amounted to a a hopeless battle, they would have mass baptisms within the army. Uh, So that's where you see a lot of those things happening. And also, uh, it led to some doctrinal issues, such as the doctrine of purgatory, because then people ask, okay, well, you can't be saved and go, like, sort of go temporarily to hell and then come back and go to heaven. You know, how does that work if, if you've been forgiven your sins, but you do sin as a Christian? What is, and then the doctrine of purgatory ended up coming out of that kind of thinking. You know, so it's not a doctrine that we really hold to today, uh, certainly not in Protestantism. But, uh, you know, they believe this. So you, you waited until at least, the, you know, the last possible moment guessing when you were going to die, you know. And Constantine was, I think, 83 when he died. So he was three days from dying. So how many sins can you commit at 83 years old, you know, <laughs> on your deathbed for three days, you know? So I think he felt he was pretty safe in getting back. But that explains that type of thing. It, not that he wasn't a good Christian throughout his entire life. I don't, you know, you, you can't really take today's Christianity and today's thinking and impose it back on right. third century, fourth century Christianity. Right. You know, but, and but really, so, too, the, the fatal flaw in that thinking is that from what you just described, these people are saying that it's baptism that saves you. So I have to wait till the the last moment that I can to get baptized because that's what's going to save me from my sins, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Right. Yeah, and they wouldn't have worded it that way. They would not have said that it was baptism that saves you. Um, but no, I don't think they did, would have. They just recognized the seriousness of committing a sin as a Christian. They they felt that being a Christian meant you were dedicating your life to living like Christ and and to avoiding all sin. Um, and then and if you did that, you kind of uh, avoided the whole controversy then of of. What happens if I do sin as a Christian? Am I really a Christian or am I not a Christian? That kind of thing. But I, I think it misses the whole point of what the Bible talks about when it when it says that Jesus paid for our sins. They're paid for. And he did that, you know, long before most of us were born. So it really, you know, in a sense, doesn't matter um, legally, I guess. I don't want to get into a tricky area here. but No, yeah, and um, I think that's what the church, um, you know, after further... Uh, analysis and, you know, uh, working it out through the ages uh, decided. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with looking back and seeing, um, you know, how some of these verses were interpreted uh, in the past. Certainly. Uh, and, right. and the point is, though, that Constantine did not invent 
Christianity because Christianity was a was really a process of over hundreds of years. It is still going on today trying to figure out what the apostles said. What did Jesus mean when he said this? Christianity is an ongoing walk with the Lord. It's not something that you just invent. You know, and so that's. It's. A, I agree with with Kirk in that it is wrong. It is a sort of a wrong-headed thinking to sort of impose, you know, th- th- this kind of, uh, you know, these kind of ideas back on on what's going on. So, well, I, I think this idea of Constantine invent, you know, as being the the culprit, I think, can be easily dismissed. All right. So let's move on then to the next. Uh, possible subject, the possible person who could have invented Christianity. I, I've heard this myself that Paul, the apostle, you know, and, and, uh, look on the face of it. I mean, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul, you know, is different from Jesus as far as we can tell. Uh, you know, Jesus was an itinerant teacher. He taught a lot about love and, you know, he was, he was very Jewish. Um, you know, he just wanted everybody to love each other. And then Paul comes along and realizes, hey, this is a pretty good thing. Uh, you know, I could make this thing go worldwide. It's kind of like the, the guy who discovered McDonald's and decided he could franchise it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Basically, so is that what happened? Is did Paul franchise Jesus's teachings? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the charge is that he sort of hijacked what was a small Jewish eschatological movement into a more Greco-Roman salvation after you've died movement. You know, and, and into a Gentile religion, into a pagan religion. Uh, well, I like that. Should we start calling it the McBible and the McGospels? <laughs> the McBible, yeah, yeah, I like that. A little, little, um, a, a happy, a happy Bible. Happy meal. Yeah. Right. Happy <laughs> meal. Have a happy get a toy meal. with it. Yeah, get a toy with every baptism. Um, <laughs> a uh, well, we could start basically with Paul. Paul, this charge, uh, I think, actually was there. When Paul himself was preaching, because we see in his letters him defending himself against this or charges similar to it. Because, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about that what he is preaching, he got from the apostles who knew Jesus when he was alive. Right. And, and that he is first and foremost preaching to them, to the Corinthians, what he received, and he goes through and he and he outlines the gospel, what it was that he received, and so it seems that at at least you know from some quarters, this kind of charge was already being leveled against him that he was you know it's preaching, yeah, some, something different, right? And um, there's a couple that uh, Peter addresses this in his general epistle where he says that the that the writings of our brother Paul, you know, are you know, are difficult because Paul was really, in terms of a theological mind, I mean, most people, most scholars recognize that Paul had an excellent uh, and very complex way of thinking. He was he was a very deep thinker. Uh, and Peter acknowledges that, uh, you know, especially, you know, considering Peter was just, you know, a rather plain-spoken fisherman, 
and he acknowledges that some of Paul's stuff is very complex and difficult to understand, but he is teaching the same thing that we taught, you know, about Jesus. And so this charge seems to be, have been there, but so they, even they deny it. Okay, so we have from both sides, from Paul and from the other apostles, confirmation that they're on the same page, that no, Paul is not out there as some renegade just, you know, teaching his own thing, franchising, as you say, uh, the gospel. So, uh, so going from that basis forward, um, I think we have to acknowledge that um, Paul, if he had been teaching something drastically different, like I say, you know, inventing Christ, as, as it were, he would have to, in some way, retroactively work for instance, the Gospels. The Gospels seem to be perfectly consistent with what Paul is teaching. Paul is sort of furthering and, and pulling out the ramifications. For instance, in Romans, Romans is the definitive theological statement for early Christianity. And, it, and it, what it does is that it gives us the theological consequences of the life of Christ. And you, and you, could, not, you could not invent that Unless you already had a uh, a pre-existing invented invented life of Christ, and most scholars today, and I think just about everyone, says that the Gospels were written after Paul's letters. So how is it that Paul right. could write could write a theological statement about an invented life of Christ that hadn't that been invented yet? <laughs> that hadn't been invented yet, right. you know. So there's a huge amount of inconsistencies here to try to say that Paul somehow was inventing, uh, you know, what we what what we've come to see as and understand as Christianity. Plus, right. you can see now if you want to get even deeper down into this topic, you can see in some of Paul's writings. And again, I'll point back to First Corinthians 15. Uh, and and that's not the only example. You'll find it in Galatians. You'll find it in Colossians and some other places. That there seem to be these bits of Aramaic poetry that underlie the Greek. And and people ask, well, how do you know that? Well, Paul was very well educated. He spoke very fluent, very good Greek, and he wrote very well. Okay, he, his Greek was exceptional, and. You bump into these places like First Corinthians 15, where all of a sudden his Greek just all of a sudden really gets kind of gunky. I mean, it's really right. bad. Right. And but if you translate that Greek into Aramaic, it actually flows wonderfully, and it right. reads like a very good early Aramaic creed. And so you ask, okay, well, why? What, what is he doing? What's going on here? And if you look at the text itself, what he's talking about, he's saying, I got this from Peter and James when I went to Jerusalem back, you know, a few years right. after Jesus was crucified. That's right. And, and part of the Aramaic was the Aramaic name for Peter, which exactly. was Cephas. Mm -hmm. So you see it when you read your text, First um, Corinthians 15, you'll see that he says he uses the name Cephas. Because that's right. what was in the um, claw, the uh, statement that the Christians had to memorize as their statement of faith. Right, and there is only one other place in all the other references 
that Paul makes to Peter, there's only one other place, and that's in Galatians 2.9, where he calls him Cephas. He calls him in in, in uh in First Corinthians, he, he refers to him as Cephas, and in Galatians two nine, he refers to him as the only two places. So it's not a very common thing for him to use that Aramaic name for Peter. Right. You know, so you know we're talking about some very unpaulian language, some very unpaulian Greek, and uh, you know, and, and then you look at what he's talking about, and he's saying that this is what I got from. Aramaic-speaking Jews over in Jerusalem, right. and I'm translating it into Greek for you, and it begins to make sense that obviously, you know, he's, he's you know, but he is then therefore what he is saying is I'm passing this on to you from another source, which was an Aramaic source, which was the original apostle. So he is not inventing yeah. anything. He is passing on something that he has learned, which was very Jewish, by the way. Uh, the other thing that I think is of much interest is um, that he even describes how he went to the original apostles to make sure that he wasn't teaching something wrong. When he got into controversy about whether or not they should keep the law, he hey, he said, maybe I have got it wrong. Maybe I am teaching something that's wrong. So he – uh, talks about how he went back to Jerusalem to uh, make sure uh, that mm-hmm. he was really teaching the truth. So he was trying to line up with what the early eyewitnesses said, and he wasn't uh, he wasn't trying to make Christianity out of whole cloth. Right, and uh, I think you know both of you and I have, uh, were, have been taught by uh, Dr. Gary Habermas has done mm-hmm. some excellent studies on this in tracing back the uh, the origin of the resurrection story. And uh, he traces that back in Paul, not necessarily the Gospels. He uses Paul to trace that back to just within a couple years of the resurrection. You're talking two or three years after the resurrection, and I highly recommend his work uh, because he does an excellent job of documenting you know, not just making theories up, but actually documenting where you, you know, how you can put this together. Yeah, and how you know again, this. Right. And that all, again, all speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, Paul is not inventing things. He is passing on things. And, you know, so it, it tends to be a, a 20th and 21st century uh, way that we sort of look at the world, you know, that we try to do things like we try to psychoanalyze Paul from, you know, with, with, with 20th century psychoanalytical tools and everything like that. And you really, you can't do that kind of thing to, to historical figures. It's, it's, it's not, uh, a valid way of, of looking at, cause, the, cause the way that they thought, we can't really put our, our minds into what they were thinking. And I think for, a, a, a Jewish scholar of Paul's caliber to simply start making things up uh, would yeah. have horrified him. You <laughs> sure, know, we would he, have some evidence of it uh, in the written records. Sure. All right, guys, let's uh, let's jump into the last, the final possibility. I mean, gosh, we've got this religion out there that people claim are true, but it can't really be true. It must be that somebody invented it. And I know 
I know who invented it. Those apostles. See, they made it up. They couldn't have. They weren't smart enough to make it up on their own. Actually, what they did is they modified previous myths that they had heard about from Egypt, from Greece, and uh, Roman soldiers that they ran into. And so they just invented Christianity from all those previous myths about dying and rising gods and things that we find from ancient Egypt from thousands of years even before the time of Jesus. So what do you think? Is that is that a possibility? (laughs) That's really interesting that uh, they thought they had Jesus all figured out, and then all of a sudden he's crucified on a cross, and they're like totally left clueless, like, what happened? This wasn't supposed to happen, and they were in fear of their lives. For a couple of days trying to figure out what to do or whether to run away or thinking the authorities were going to be after them next. And then all of a sudden they just um, decided, well, let's come up with a new religion here. <laughs> well, I yeah. think the, the theory is supposed to go that Jesus never actually lived, uh, that these guys just started writing about a fictional character that they invented based on these myths that they that had gone down through different civilizations uh, since the beginning of time. It's kind of like a part of being a human is believing in dying and rising gods. Well, then how do we explain all the extra biblical sources that mention Jesus? Oh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> curtain, yes, yeah, that's... And let's also, well, just first off, have to ignore the fact that, that you're dealing with Jews who would right. not be caught dead, you right. know, believing in a pagan myth, all right? I mean, so we'll just have to, st- for the sake of this argument, we'll put all that stuff aside just for that, for just so we can argue this case, because that they, it would be dead in the water right from the beginning. But first off, this has betrays a complete misconception of what myth is and how myth developed. No one invents myth. No one ever actually sits down and like, I'm going to write a myth today, okay? Myth develops over the course of centuries, and it, and it's stories that are sort, that sort of start off getting told like around campfires, and they get told through generations, and they get modified and changed, and they're, you know, so myth as a genre just doesn't get invented this way. So again, we'll push that aside, and we'll and 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 we'll not and we'll not even you know go there. But truthfully, this this was this notion that uh, the apostles drew on a whole bunch of different pagan myths and sort of cobbled this this story together mm. is not an original idea. It it, it came. In the works of several scholars in the mid 19th century, and it was a, it was a, was called a syncretic view of the origin of Christianity. Syncretism is when you you know ha- blend things together, uh, and that it, it, it was an interesting idea at the time. But certainly, as the as more texts from the ancient world came to light. It became abundantly apparent to the to the scholarly community that, as a theory, it simply didn't hold water, and it was abandoned by all scholars of comparative religion in the early twenties. I would say at the latest, certainly by the mid twentieth century, there were no uh, no supporters of this theory left because it ran into so many different problems. One, there are two different kinds of of pagan 
influences that you see or pagan uh, expressions that you'll see of Christianity. One is uh, pagan stories that look like um, pagan stories that look like Christian stories. All right, so uh, right. so you know you, you hear people say, well, Mithras was a, uh, a, a, a was born of a virgin on December 25th and you know right. all these things and it's just like Jesus Had disciples right? yeah baptism communion etc which is which is absolute truthfully is is nonsense Mithras was was born uh, fully formed he was never a child he was born fully formed from the back of a cave from the stone right, from of a, a cave Right. From a rock, and right. uh, I don't know, and I don't know. If, Believe it or not, how rock. they do it? Yeah, they say that that see a rock is a virgin. Yeah, I don't know uh, how. I don't know whether the rock could be a virgin or not, but um, yeah, you know that he is was born. What they say fully formed from the cave and uh, wearing his hat of no, no less. There's a special hat that he wears, so he was born <laughs> fully from. And yes, he was born on December 25th, but there's nothing in the Bible that says Jesus, Jesus was born on December 25th. You know, so right. as you go through in the details, none of this actually matches up. Right. And the same thing with the Osiris myth. There's, there's a, you know, a, a notion that Osiris was torn apart by dogs and that he was then sewn back together and then he was brought back to life. Well, that's not exactly right. He right. was taken to the underworld and in the afterlife he was he was given life, you know, as a you know, a spirit being the same way as the Egyptians believed after you were mummified you went to the next world and he right. ruled so, that world. That's right. So, so he was so that's still dead. <laughs> Right, he was but just he alive. Was only in the <laughs> yes, but 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 as in Princess Bride, as Billy Crystal said, you know, he was only mostly dead, which is still a little bit alive. Okay, um, you uh, it, it, this this really isn't resurrection in the way in the Christian understanding of the term. So right. it just didn't. It, it's it's not not nearly the same thing. And so when you get into the details of these things, it just didn't work. And so you find most of these pagan copycat lookalikes actually are post-Christian. Most That's of them right. were – because the Romans did this all the time. They would mix and match their gods and, their, and the attributes. And so if they saw, oh, Christianity seems to be popular right now, we'll mix in a little bit of this Jesus fellow into our gods. And so you see in the late 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century – when the, when their tails are getting whooped by Christianity, uh, they start mixing in some of the Christian story into their myths, not the other way around. That's what they began to find found out about this. And then in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, Christianity itself, having become imperial, begins to take on some of the trappings of of paganism. And I don't deny that at all. The Christmas tree, the Easter eggs. The uh, the December twenty fifth date for 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 Christmas, all of this stuff it comes from pagan traditions, absolutely. But none of it's in the Bible. None of it traces back to biblical Christianity, and so that's the important point. You can't say that Christianity was invented by these by these things because none of it is actually at. The, the birthing of Christianity itself. It's just stuff that got later woven in by a pagan world that was converting to, a, to Christianity, you know, over time. So, 
this is why this theory basically was dropped in the professional field in uh, in comparative religion. You will not find this theory at all in the literature for the past oh eighty years. You really won't right. find this theory being espoused anywhere. And I highly recommend. But you can you-, you can find it on YouTube. Oh, you'll find it on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, you'll find it on the internet. You'll find it. But okay. these people. Okay, know, guys, don't... I'm I'm dying here. We have a, about three minutes left. I'm dying to find out who did invent Christianity. Yeah, <laughs> we're out of kind of out of options now, John. I mean, you just uh, slammed the three possible inventors of Christianity. So, I mean, there there really is this religion out there. How did it get here? I've got a very novel idea that. Folks, next week, radically new idea that maybe Jesus Christ invented Christianity. Could that possibly? Well, I thought he was named after Christianity. You mean that Christianity is named after him? (laughs) Could be. Just could be that actually there there was this this fellow named Jesus Christ that existed in the first century who died on a cross for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world and that maybe everyone ought to take a look at it and read the New Testament. Like don't read the YouTube version of the of the New Testament. Read the actual New Testament. And don't don't read the transcript of the Council of Nicaea first. Read the New Testament first. Yes, and don't read Dan's Brown version of the Council of Nicaea's version of the New Testament. Don't don't read Dan Brown at all. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. So yes, I highly recommend that idea. Read read the authors and the, and the actual inventor of Christianity, Jesus Christ. I think that that you'll you'll find it very fruitful. Very good. And if uh, people want more on the uh, Mithra and Osiris things, we did a, a podcast on this uh, maybe a year ago or, or so, so you can look back in the archives uh, at evidenceforfaith.com. It's uh, evidence, the number four, faith.com. Well, you have been listening to Keith Kendricks and Kirk Hastings and John Conforti. And we are Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments and questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah, what?